I'm Dr. Kelly Jones. And I'm Noelle LaCroix. And this is Orgasm, the podcast from Chipperish Media where we reach for explosive inspiration. Each episode is a deep dive into a topic that sparks our creative energy, and we'll talk about that topic through our ideas framework. Ideas is an acronym for identification, discovery, exploration, analysis, and synthesis. Today's orgasm is about books, so grab your library cards. But before you meet me in the stacks, let's bask in the afterglow of our last orgasm. Our last topic was writing. Yes. So what afterglow do you have to bask in? (laughs) Well, I can't decide if I'm basking or recovering. Because oh no, <laughs> right? I know. Oh, oh dear. I, yeah. What happened? I mean, in, in a good way. Okay. All right. I kind of had an epiphany about writing that happened when I thought about our last episode and then was scripting for this episode about books. Oh. This idea hit me like really hard. The kind of idea that has a physical presence, like a physical punch. Oh yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of those. I think my deep love of books might actually be the source of my writer's block. Whoa. Explain how. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because I think I love books so much that I don't feel that I could ever do one justice by trying to write one. And so because that love is so great and I don't feel that I can create something on that level Mm. then I feel like I can't write oh baby yeah (laughs) so it's just this kind of idea that like oh this is the thing I love most in the whole universe and maybe that is why I can't make one now I'm I'm having glimpses of Elizabeth Gilbert talking Mm -hmm. about you know, like, take it seriously, but don't take it seriously. Yeah. Like, it's the, you know, it's your life's work, but it's also supposed to be enjoyable. I mean, mm-hmm. can you hold that Elizabeth Gilbert paradox in your head at all about it? If only I'd read Big Magic 10 or 12 times and oh, had yeah. hmm. any... <laughs> Darn. <laughs> any connection to this idea whatsoever. And it's funny because I have read that book probably mm-hmm. that many times. And I've always understood conceptually what she was saying, but it just hit me like a truck that that's exactly what she's talking about. I just had never connected the writing with the finished product in that same way, Mm -hmm. like that I was trying to write a book. It was never just that I was trying to write. Yeah. There was always a book at the end of that. Yeah. And someone on Discord asked why I didn't talk about NaNoWriMo when we did the writing episode of Orgasm. And I realized it's because that's like a huge failure vulnerability Mm. for me, Mm -hmm. having researched NaNoWriMo, but not actually won NaNoWriMo, unless you count the 50,000 words of my dissertation, which I did finish, but I sure (laughs) as hell didn't write in 30 days. And I thought, you know what? Every time I've tried to do NaNo, I've tried to write a book. Mm -hmm. And I think this year, I am not going to try to write a book. I'm just going to try to write 50,000 words. Oh, I love that idea. So, like, I have this notebook full of story ideas. They're not connected. 
They're just all <laughs> over the place. Uh-huh. Different genres, different characters, different ideas. So I think I might just write a little bit of something every day and not worry if it connects or if it's the same characters or not even worry about a plot or uh-huh. a point <laughs> and just try to write 50,000 words instead of trying to write a book. And those those two ideas kind of hit me at the same time. I think that's fantastic. No, I think that's a fantastic way to go about it because who knows, it may actually end up being a cohesive thing. You know, there are plenty of there are plenty of books that have multiple stories going on at the same time where you sort of jump back and forth. Those are my favorite kind of books. Yeah. (laughs) So I just thought I was like, oh, my God, maybe if I stop trying to write a book and just write. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it might be different. So it was it was a really interesting afterglow because I thought, oh, my God, can you love a thing too much? (laughs) and I firmly reject that premise yeah but I need to reframe it in a way that works for me so um yes Elizabeth Gilbert was right all along as she always is but I just now (laughs) understand it on a level that I never have before no I love that yeah so what about you what was your basking in the afterglow like well, I ended up with a little bit of a spontaneous orgasm with regards Ooh. to writing. I was hanging out with one of my friends with drawbacks, and he said, writing is the reason humanity can progress. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it just kind of blew my tiny little mind because what we were talking about was the sharing of knowledge and that if you can write something down, then you can pass it on to someone or you can pass it over you know you can pass it to somebody who you wouldn't be able to sit face to face with and have a conversation because there's geographical (laughs) distance between you but it means that if someone makes a discovery and then writes it down that person you know passes on goes on to whatever happens to us when we die But I can still read that information. I can still participate in that knowledge. And that just, it just kind of blew my mind the way, the way he distilled it so succinctly and perfectly as writing, writing as evolution, really, of humanity. And I just Mm -hmm. kind of couldn't even wrap my mind around how cool that was oh no that's amazing yeah I love that idea and it immediately brings to mind two things um one is the indigo girl song about virginia wolf oh so one of the indigo girls her mother is a librarian and she brought home virginia wolf's diary like her journals mm-hmm. for her daughter to read and she ended up writing the song about it and she talks about like it's kind of a telephone line through time. Like that's one of the lyrics oh, connecting wow. her yeah. to Virginia Woolf. And like this friendship or this, you know, feeling of connection that she got from, from reading her words. And I've always thought that that song was so beautiful because it does talk about that power of, of writing and, and how it connects us to each other, even if we don't realize it. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, yeah, it made me think um, in college, my favorite class was called the History of Print. 
And we started with the alphabet and went forward (laughs) and (laughs) studied Walter Ong's theories of communication waves. And oh my God, that class was amazing. And sort of the thesis of the course was writing is what led to civilization as we know it. And it was just an amazing class and just, you know, it was fantastic. But that that quote that you just said would have fit Mm -hmm. in beautifully. (laughs) Yeah, it's it it's kind of mind boggling when you think about how we come to understand the things that we understand or think we understand. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that you had a spontaneous orgasm from a really cool idea. I did. Yeah, that makes me very happy. Yeah. And it does connect well with our topic for today. Yes, I was just about to say that, that it, it nicely transitions us into books. Into books. Which you chose. I did finally choose a topic. <laughs> <laughs> I chose books for today's discussion because books are woven into my soul. And other than the people I cherish, books are what I love most in the world. So searching for orgasms on bookshelves makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> so let's get into the ideas. All what right. do you have for identification about books? So when you chose books, the first thing that came to mind for me was the physical objects, not mm-hmm. reading, but books themselves. And when I think about defining books as a topic, I get to things like reading and shared knowledge and my history as a reader and my relationship to things I've read. But the first thing I think about is books lined up on shelves or piled on my nightstand and the physical sensation of carrying a stack of books out of the library. Mm. And I think about being in the presence of books Some of my earliest and fondest memories are of the public library. That was a frequent outing when I was a child because it was free and because we had access to a beautiful, enormous public library. And some of my favorite grade school memories are of our school library, which was much smaller, but was, was, uh, I don't want to say manned personed (laughs) by an incredible woman who was just, I mean, she was one of my first experiences of what a librarian is. And I mean, thank God, because that woman was a saint and just always chose such thoughtful, you know, selections for, for us when we came into the school library. And I also have just the fondest memories of the Scholastic Book Fair at school. I remember the overwhelming awe of just being in the presence of so many books. I mean, Mm -hmm. and I have these vivid memories connected to books that are related to the spaces themselves. So what the public library entryway looked like. I mean, it was air conditioned. So you'd come in from the hot Southern California outside into this air-conditioned entryway. And I just, like, I remember that temperature contrast. Mm -hmm. And I remember that elementary school auditorium being just filled with folding table after folding table after folding table, you know, lined with books for the book fair. And libraries felt, and really still, 
feel a lot like church to me. I can get hit with awe and wonder and faith in divinity and a consciousness bigger than mine just walking into a library. Oh, that's beautiful. And what's funny to me is I only rarely got that feeling in church when I attended church regularly, but I feel it so often in libraries. Bookstores don't have the same holiness for me, but bookstores Mm -hmm. are friendly, safe spaces. Um, I think about them a lot like people and that I still mourn the closings of Sisterhood Bookstore and Dutton's Brentwood Books in Los Angeles. Yeah, so that's what I've got for books. Yeah, this is fascinating to me, like thinking about your connection to the space, because it got (laughs) me thinking like, as a kid, we moved around so much that I didn't have a library. Mm. Mm -hmm. We, We went to the library a lot, but it was always a different library. Like I didn't have one that I got attached to. Because we moved all the time. Yeah. And so the same was true for my school library. Although the first time I skipped class was to stay in the library. (laughs) (laughs) Because of course it was. Yeah. But I did get very attached to the library when I was in graduate school. The Tarver Library at Mercer University is a beautiful brick building and it has a spire. And it became an incredibly special place to me because of the time I spent in there and the people that I was there with. Yes. But it's the only library of my memory associated with a group of people. But it's so it's it's not so much about the space as it is the communion, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think it's wonderful that you have that connection to the space of books because I would not have thought of that. I think it's wonderful. So what have you got for me? Well, <laughs> I- <laughs> Because I know how you feel about books, but I want to hear you say it. (laughs) I mean, this is romantic to the point of ridiculous. It's just like, oh my God. Books are my first and most enduring love. And they're holy to me. They are the thing that, I don't know. I don't want to say the thing that matters most in the whole wide world to me, but they might be. (laughs) And so I did think about this as a reader. You know, like you were saying, Mm -hmm. your first thought was the physical books and the spaces. My first thought is the words in my head and the words on my heart. Hmm. The first thing I remember reading on my own was a billboard sign. I was riding in the car and I had been learning letters and like the reading basics, you know, Mm -hmm. and I saw a sign and it was like this magic zap because the letter spelled a word and I could read it. And it was like, it was like a jolt. I mean, it was amazing. And I remember feeling like that, like waking up for the first time in my whole life. And I think I'd been on the planet for like four whole years, maybe three and a half. I don't know. (laughs) I was young. And, (laughs) and then I remember the first books I could read by myself, you know, or, or that kind of that solitude and that quiet of reading alone. Um, we had a child craft collection of books and there was a fairy tale one and there was a poetry one those were the two we also had them about animals and about other stuff I didn't care but the poetry (laughs) and the fairy tales were mine (laughs) I think I ended up sneaking them and hiding them away but I don't I don't ever want to live 
without books. They, they're precious to me. And in terms of identification, books were how I found myself and they're still the best place to hear the echoes of my own heart. Because things that don't exist in my life or that are impossible do exist in books. And knowledge I don't have is carried in books and books give me hope and inspiration and ideas and I can live well and happily on those three things. Plus caffeine. And, (laughs) you know, books have taught me things and shown me things that I would not have had access to any other way. And they're also the pathways to some of the strongest emotional experiences of my life Mm. that are not connected to heartbreak or trauma, (laughs) even though some of the reading experiences kind of are. But being fully open to story in a way that I'm rarely fully open in real life lets me feel a rush of empathy and a race to the end of the story and I can laugh and cry and lose myself in the words and the pages and it's just the best thing and I feel ridiculous (laughs) saying all that I'm like love letter to books I love books thank you for coming to my TED talk that's all I got (laughs) I love it though I love it a love story between a woman and her library oh god yes (laughs) I think that's beautiful But I am a little bit opposite of you, though, where it comes to bookstores and libraries. Huh. Bookstores are my happy place. And I also love libraries. But bookstores are truly magical for me because they are places of discovery. And they smell like heaven. And the care (laughs) and keeping of books in a store speaks to me deeply. And I really do treasure libraries. But I'm much more likely to stumble across a magical book in a bookstore So it kind of feels like libraries are for finding and bookstores are for exploring. Hmm. And they also sell journals and notebooks and very often coffee. (laughs) Well, (laughs) and I mean, come on. I had my first cup of coffee in a bookstore. So and and that is like more powerful for me than the place I had my first kiss. Like caffeine (laughs) plus books. Come on. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) but growing up we didn't get to go to the bookstore as much as we did libraries because you know money was tight and it's one thing my dad was really good about he did support me reading even though he never really understood why I liked the kind of books I liked (laughs) and he tended to kind of scoff at them but he still would buy them for me and my mother would get furious with him for quote unquote wasting money on books because I read really fast And she's, you know, she would be like, she's going to be done with that book in an hour. Why did you waste that money? But I would read (laughs) some of them like 10 and 20 times, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and I still have my childhood copies of Anne of Green Gables and Little Women and Shel Silverstein's poetry and my first book of nursery rhymes and probably some others that I've carried from place to place to place to place for, you know, years, decades. (laughs) And, you know, I grew up and got a fucking PhD. So I think the reading investment paid off. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. I I think so. But I also want to buy books because I want to keep them and I want to write in them. And I like seeing them lined up on shelves or stacked around the house and brushing my fingers along the spines when I'm tidying up. And you can't do that with library books cuz you have to give them back. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of it is also about human connection. <laughs> 
because books are the best way for me to bond with people. I mean, I am by no means shy. I will talk to anybody. I can talk to a brick wall. (laughs) But someone recommending a book to me that I love makes me feel loved. And someone reading a book that I recommend to them makes me feel wonderful. And God, do I love recommending books. (laughs) (laughs) But I had a hard time defining my terms as a reader when I was trying to do this for this section. Because I get asked a lot, what do you like to read? And I'm like, why don't you ask me what genre of music do you like to listen to? Because I can't pick one. It's just not possible for me. <laughs> you like them all. I'll take them all, please. I kind of do. <laughs> I like them all. And, you know, reading, I guess my relationship to reading has changed a lot. Because when I was young, I could read so damn fast. And now I read so damn slow. And it drives me crazy. And I've always had some amount of, I don't know if it's guilt or shame or feeling weird or different because of my deep connection to books. I got teased a lot growing up because I carried a book with me everywhere I went. And people that either live with me or help me move complain about all the books and the space they take up. And most of the people I grew up around couldn't relate to my love of books and People that I date tend to get annoyed when I would rather read than do other things. And (laughs) (laughs) and I have sacrificed probably entirely too many nights of sleep to the altar of books. And so sometimes I have to question, like, what is wrong with me? (laughs) Like, that I would literally rather read than do almost anything. And for a while, I really let myself fall into this, this really negative space with it where... I was like, okay, books are just a form of escapism because life sucks and reality is hard and you need to put the books down and just do the things and like stop trying to run away into books. Mm. But that was like trying not to breathe. I don't (laughs) recommend it. It didn't work very well. Because for me, there is incredible value in all things books. I just don't know how to explain it. Like I can't articulate it, but I believe in it. And I know it's true because my body reacts to it. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. I know. Can't lie about that. Uh, No, you you really can't. You really can't. You can try to run away from your own body, but it doesn't work. No, not really well. But when I walk into a bookstore, I take a deep breath, whether I mean to or not, and my whole body hums with happiness, and I just melt into, like, this relaxed state, and my soul says, home. And it it is a physical reaction that is just very real for me. I joke about Spike turning me into a vampire, but the main reason I want to live forever is that I can keep reading and tackle my entire to be read list. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. I love books. The long version. (laughs) No, I love it. When I was pregnant with my first child, I broke down one day and just a total, you know, hormonal, weepy mess because I couldn't read all of the books. Like, I would not live long enough to read all of the books. Like, it Mm -hmm. just, and for some reason, that day, you know, growing that child, it just, like, crushed my soul and I completely (laughs) lost it in a library, naturally, because, you know... 
But it is so fascinating to me that you say that libraries are for finding and bookstores are for exploring. Because mm-hmm. for me, at least at this point in my my relationship to books, it is the opposite. Libraries are where I go to just kind of look around and see what there is to to discover. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I tend to go to the bookstore when I'm looking for something specific that I want to purchase because I want to mark it all up with notes. Oh, that's fascinating. I do the exact opposite. That is so I go funny. to the library when I know exactly what I'm looking for. And I go to the bookstore when I have no idea what I want yeah. to find. At this point in my life, I'm truly the opposite. But that gets us really nicely into discovery because when I started thinking about this, I realized that my relationship to books has evolved significantly. When I was Mm -hmm. a child, it was very much like the more books, the merrier. It happened semi-regularly that I would read in bed and end up falling asleep under a giant pile of picture books. (laughs) Oh, But I haven't taken a book, you know, even just one book to bed in ages. Oh, and <laughs> I do other fun things in bed, okay? Okay. <laughs> and when I think about it, it occurs to me that books aren't something I feel drawn to accumulate right now. In fact, mm-hmm. I recently did this big purge of my books, which I do periodically with all of my things. And I got my collection down to two shelves that I have arranged mostly by color. And I started wondering about this little collection that I have now. And if there was something these books all had in common that made me feel compelled to keep them when I passed on or, or donated or sold so many others. And the thing I was most interested in teasing out with all of this was what my relationship to books is now, because I know what it was when I was a child, but I haven't thought about how I relate to books now. Oh, that's interesting. And when you say two shelves. (laughs) Oh, I mean, like two, like two shelves. Not like two bookcases. No, not two bookcases. We have three big bookcases in the the common area in mm-hmm. my house. And then my oldest, whose motto is, if I can't bring my book, I'm not coming, has Amen. probably, <laughs> has probably, oh, I don't know, maybe half that collection, mm-hmm. again, like half again, that many um, in his room. Good for him. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I mean, two shelves, like you would go to the hardware store and like get a plank of wood and put it on your wall. Wow. Yeah. I would die. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I think that's really interesting to think about how your relationship to books has changed. Because like I go through periods of reading blocks or like reading fasts. But even Mm. when I'm not reading, I keep collecting books. (laughs) Because I know I'll read them one day. (laughs) I will come back to it. Even if for some reason we are separated, our love cannot be denied. It is epic. (laughs) We're going to come back together. It's just how it is. (laughs) 
I realized, though, when you started talking about kind of your, your collection and how you had curated it, that I mark up my nonfiction books, and I also write in my poetry books, but mm. I rarely write in fiction books, and I never, ever mark up a picture book. And so I don't know why, like, I don't know where those rules for books came from, but that's kind of how I operate. Hmm. And so moving to this new apartment has made me think a lot about how I want to live at home and what I want home to look like and feel like. And right now I just want it to be unpacked. But by extension, that makes me question how I want to live and spend my time because I can't take any question and keep it at a surface level. And the answer seems to be I want a bookish life and a bookish home. And I've always associated reading with the feeling of falling into a book. But it's gotten harder as I've gotten older and maybe more cynical. I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> I've discovered that I can still fall and maybe even more deeply than I could before. But it happens with fewer books. So I have less pain tolerance in terms of tragic endings and mm. senseless violence. And I want wit and wordplay. I want love stories instead of romance. I want surprises instead of endings I can predict. And I want meaning in what I'm reading. And I kind of want happy endings. And they don't have to be like the romantic, perfectly tied up, happy kittens and rainbows kind of ending. But I want a book that leaves me with a sense of hope or understanding or insight or inspiration, or mostly the desire to share what I just read with someone else. <laughs> and so that has really changed because I didn't used to be a sharer of books. Like I just read for me. I didn't talk about books. I didn't, I sure as hell didn't give them to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> keep all the books. That is how you win. <laughs> you keep <Exactly>. them all. <laughs> but now I do. And like, even on my, as I'm unpacking books and I'm noticing I have a habit of putting someone's name inside a book on a sticky note. Because oh, I when I that. read it, I think I'd really like to send this book to this person. Half the people I don't have addresses for, and I'm terrible about getting stuff out in the mail. But I do like to share books now in a way that I didn't when I was younger. So my relationship to books has changed that way. And when I was younger, I wanted to be entertained, interested, or distracted. Like it was just pure escapism. Mm -hmm. And now I want to be moved. You know, it's the transportation of story. And books still operate as portals for me, but the potion ingredients have to be stronger than they used to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I want some meaning in that movement. So it's just kind of interesting to think about that. And the other side of discovery for me was thinking about how I find books or how they find me. So... Most often, a book that I end up loving, and I mean loving, is in the <laughs> wrong place at the bookstore. What do you mean in the wrong place? Like, like it's, it. someone was reading it. Like, okay, for example, um, when I found The Ethical Slut, which was a book that completely changed my paradigm about all things related to relationships and sex, it was laying on a bench in the Eastern religion section of a bookstore. <laughs> very clearly out of place yeah and there's something about a book that is out of place that catches my attention sure and okay. i have found some truly wonderful books like that and it just seems to happen that way i don't know why but they find me a lot like that and it seems to happen in bookstores 
I really enjoy learning about books from podcasts, just from people talking about, you know, different books that they're reading. I love Ann Vogel's podcast, What Should I Read Next? And I got to meet her last year at the Novel Neighbor, which is my favorite bookstore in St. Louis. Uh, and she's delightful. And she has a book out called Reading People that is at the top of my to-be-read pile. And by top, I mean like in the top 100 books I like to read right now that I don't have time for. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the surest and truest book recommendations come from friends. Always. So if I love you, I want to know about your favorite books. And not just the books you love, but why you love them. I'm over here nodding vigorously. You can't see me. But, <laughs> like, <laughs> but that yes. is a discovery process in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think most of the books I've read recently have been books that were either given to me by friends or someone said, have you read this? You have to read this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Those. Yeah. I think all of them. I should think about that. But we're just, we're rocking the segues today because that really does take us to exploration. <laughs> You're rocking the segues today, baby, and I am along for the ride. <laughs> oh, hey. All right. Okay. You sleep. I'll drive. Let's do this. Deal. <laughs> so I decided, looking at this little, this little library that I've curated now, I decided to count and catalog my books. Of of course you did. Of course of I did. Of course you did. Now, just to be clear, this accounts for books that belong only to me, not okay. shared reference or picture books, of which there are many. I think every flat surface in my home has at least three books on it. As as it should be. <laughs> that is that is the decor in my mm -hmm. house. It's just books. Yes. So of books belonging to me, and only me, I have 70 books. Okay. That's seven zero. <laughs> I have 16 cookbooks, eight fiction books, 35 nonfiction, six reference, and five workbooks. And it strikes me that that's a lot of collecting and sharing of knowledge more than of story. There's not a lot of storytelling there. Mm-hmm. And then I decided to break this down further because why the hell not? It's only 70 books. Let's just keep going. Because data analysis is awesome. That's why. <laughs> because data analysis is one of the surest ways to get Kelly to orgasm. Damn right. So of the eight works of fiction, I've read six of them. Hmm. And four of those are by the same author. Of the nonfiction books, which is where I classified anything that wasn't a cookbook, a reference book, or a workbook, I've read maybe half of those mm -hmm. books, um, but some of them I've read more than once. Of the 70 books total, I absolutely love this. Only six were written by men. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I have eight repeat offenders <laughs> <laughs> who have multiple titles on my shelves Shockingly, they're all women. Mm -hmm. They're all living, mm -hmm. currently aged 33 to 78, although most of them are in their 40s or 60s. Interesting. Yeah. And I just think that would be one hell of a dinner party if I weren't an exhausted ambivert who also has trouble eating in front of people. Oh, baby, you just change it up from a dinner party to coffee and... Don't worry about it. I'll host it for you. It'll be awesome. Oh, my God. 
Yeah, I think I think you would dig this party. I would totally dig that party. Yeah. Yep. When I read your notes, because um, you were ahead of me, which is shocking to believe that I would ever leave a podcast script to the last minute. But you inspired me to do the same with my books. <laughs> but this is hilarious because my books are not even close to being unpacked. And so the researcher in me is like screaming because this is based on a random sampling of books and it's not truly representational data. And so this horrifies me because this is bad data collection. Like this is not <laughs> this is not an accurate sampling and this is not it's how you should do it. Bad researcher. This is bad research, okay? No grant money. <laughs> no. I am not putting any citations after this mess. But <laughs> This is all I've got unpacked, so this is all I could count. (laughs) Now, this is after a major book purge before my move last month. This does not count the 100 plus audiobooks on my Audible app. Oh, good Lord. Doesn't count the ebooks in my Kindle app. So we're just talking physical books. So far, I have unpacked 168 books. I have seven boxes left to unpack. Uh, seven boxes of books oh my god yeah (laughs) of those 168 30 actually belong in my office at work because they're professional reference books four are picture books nine are poetry collections 55 are fiction 70 are nonfiction. and what was interesting was about half of the nonfiction were about writing story or books because I have a special place in my heart for books that are about books. Oh, it's just books all the way down. Books about books about books about books. Yes, I love it. <laughs> but I really do want to catalog the books now, if I ever get them all unpacked. And I moved four large bookcases into this apartment. That's down from the six large bookcases I had before I moved to Missouri. And I don't have enough wall space. Like, I literally do not have wall space for these bookcases here because my apartment is teeny tiny. And that means I'm <laughs> going to have to pare down the books even more. And that makes me incredibly sad. Oh, Because also, I will not stop buying them. <laughs> and I, I can't help it. I don't want to live without bringing new books home. So I have to figure out a system for keeping and giving away and storing books because it would be like saying no you can never make any new friends for the rest of your life like I can't do it oh well at least they're not kittens that grow into cats (laughs) I mean (laughs) if you're gonna fill your house with something I think you could probably do a lot worse than books although now I'm just picturing because I know because you've told me that you need some new furniture items. I'm picturing everything with like built-in bookshelves because you can get headboards that have built-in bookshelves. But then I'm also picturing like an armchair with like a built-in bookshelf and a yeah. dining table. With... Actually, that would be amazing because then the books would be right there with the morning coffee. There you go. I like it. Yeah. This is a good yeah, plan. Streamline the whole process. <laughs> but you mentioned audiobooks. And it occurs to me that I don't, I I do not engage with audiobooks, generally speaking. Interesting. And not because I have anything against them. I I love the idea of audiobooks. I love that they make books so accessible to so many more people. Mm-hmm. But I just don't tend to 
think about books that way. The one thing I do, <laughs> the one thing I do do, though, in terms of books and audio, I uh, have a CD player in my car. <laughs> oh my God, I love you so much. I have a CD player in my car. It's 2006 in your car. It's 2006 in my car. <laughs> for real. I am podcasting from my car right now. It is the past. Oh, God. Like, I do adore you. Yeah. <laughs> But I have found that I can get books on CD at the library, and I tend to do this with books that are really challenging to read, like the the subject matter or, mm -hmm. you know, someone really knowledgeable, like, oh, I don't know, like a therapist has said, hey, maybe you should check out this book. Or, you know, a friend who's going through similar trauma to my trauma is like, hey, this might resonate with your trauma. You should read this book. And I go, it's never going to happen. But if I put it, <laughs> really, it, like if I have to, if I have to read the book, it is very likely that it will just sit on my nightstand with, you know, whatever else is on my nightstand and grow dust bunnies mm -hmm. the size of actual bunnies before I really <laughs> read it. So I've been getting difficult books on CD and listening to them on long drives. And it's really been helpful. It's really, really been helpful because I can engage with this scary or challenging material in a way that feels a lot more comfortable. Oh, that's interesting. So for me, my first audiobook, I was in the fifth grade with my amazing English teacher who I was lucky enough to have for half of fifth grade and sixth grade and we were doing a poetry unit and she took us to the library and the librarian had the tape deck you know this was this wasn't cd this was still on tapes and they played Shel Silverstein reading his poetry oh which I was already in love with the man's entire collection at that point <laughs> in my life and so, and I'd all, I've always loved being read to. Like that teacher, Miss Stewart, she read to us every day. I've always loved, loved being read to. But the narrator has to be right. Like I'm very, very picky. Like nowadays when I'm searching for an audiobook, I will be as likely to search by narrator as by author. So I end up reading a lot of books that I would not otherwise find because I want to hear that narrator. That is so brilliant. It's kind of opened up a new way of finding books, you know, because yeah. once I love the voice, then I want to hear that person read. But when audiobooks, like my first relationship with them were was pretty rocky, I think because I didn't really understand what I wanted from a narrator and how that relationship was supposed to work. And so I really resisted it for a long time. But then one day I had to drive from the campus where I was teaching in middle Georgia to our campus in Atlanta. And I had been up almost all night. I think I had gotten maybe two or three hours sleep. Maybe Ooh. I had a sick kid and I had final exam. And so I had been up way too long to be driving that far. And so I did what I always do in times of great crisis. And I went to the bookstore before I got on the interstate <laughs> <laughs> because I was desperate for coffee and that's my favorite place to get coffee. And when I walked in to get coffee, they had a display of audiobooks. 
and they were on sale. And this was still CDs. This was, I think this might have been 2006. <laughs> and so I was like, well, maybe this will keep me awake in the car. Like if I try this, because I, I didn't think it was going to work. And it ended up being a narrator I still love today. I still listen to her all the time just because I love her so much. And it kept me awake and alert, and I ended up enjoying the drive, and it was wonderful. And I have been hooked on audiobooks ever since. So I probably am 50-50 with what I read in a physical book and what I listen to on audio. I love that. I love you finding things based on narrator, because that would never occur to me. But that is exactly how I engage with media. I mean, in terms of, you know, when we're thinking about analysis and looking at the writers whose work comprises my library, I was especially intrigued by the repeat offenders because Mm -hmm. this is so totally in line with how I understand myself and how I choose what to read or listen to or watch. I tend to respond to individual creative people rather than franchises or worlds or ideas. Hmm. So for example, I was excited about The Force Awakens because I'm a fan of Carrie Fisher as a writer and a performer and a badass human being. Well, hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, also Oscar Isaac is a total babe. He's like the babeliest babe, whoever <laughs> babed. But my date for the movie was exciting about seeing a new Star Wars film. So Interesting. Yeah. And I don't think about that as often with visual media, although there are several actors who anything they do, you know, sign me up because I just love them so much. No, you just completely lit up my brain because (laughs) you know what I go to Star Wars movies for? Hmm. The music. No. Seeing a Star Wars film in the theater is a completely overwhelming magical musical experience for me. Every time. Huh. There's something about that kind of music with that kind of action on screen every single time. Wow. That was especially true with The Force Awakens. But I've never analyzed myself in terms of what media I'm drawn to the way that you have. We might have to do an orgasm about that. (laughs) Yeah, well... (laughs) We, that that might have to be a two-parter because you get me to seriously yeah. well we'd have to have one just for podcast and then one for everything else oh my god if we do an orgasm about podcasts y'all are in trouble oh it would be fun <laughs> it would be seven hours but it would be fun yeah it would be it would be like yes yeah so so how does that relationship to media relate to your relationship to books well I was thinking about that. And I think with writers, a book feels even more like it's connected to that individual person, Mm -hmm. especially with fiction. I think because with fiction, someone imagined this, like somebody, somebody had to picture this in their mind and then turn it into words, Mm -hmm. probably in a computer. Although, you know, if I'm reading something really old, yeah, maybe even, you know, like, who knows? And then those words get 
made into a book. It's like it, it it's like a fucking miracle. I just don't even like, I don't even <laughs> understand how this is real and how we're not just all like in total awe of books all the time. But when I think about books, I think about I tend to think about the author. Mm-hmm. And it feels like a very one-way exchange of energy. And that energy in as I'm reading is coming to me from the writer. Huh. I mean, and let's be honest, the editor also. Of course, with you it would be. Yeah. But this is why libraries feel holy to me, because each book in a library was written by at least one person and edited or reviewed by at least one other person. I mean, most likely. Mm -hmm. So that's at least two humans worth of creative energy in each of these thousands of books. And I mean, the amount of just knowledge and experience that a library holds is so truly awesome to me in the olden timey sense of the word awesome. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And you framing books and reading in terms of creative energy and knowledge was really intriguing for me. So I tried to figure out how I would frame it mm-hmm. because, of course, my experience of this is very different. And I think what I came down to is books are portals. So they're gateways to possibilities, to life bigger and beyond my own, to my emotional and intellectual home. But basically, and again, this is completely ridiculous, but every book is a new opportunity to fall in love. Because love means tell me a story or share the story with me or be part of my story. And they're so wrapped up together for me. And I don't know if that's about shared intimacy because someone who loves books the way I do speaks my language and people who write books create magic that we all get to share. But I see it as like a, I guess, kind of the opposite as it is for you where books offer a shared experience between reader and writer, between the writer and their characters or their subject, between those characters and subjects and the readers, and then between readers and other readers. Like, have you ever met somebody that loves a book you love and you're like, oh my gosh, we've both had that experience. It's kind of amazing <laughs> to me. And, and it's a delightful sort of polyamory because it's an open sharing of stories. And that is why I cannot be monogamous to one genre or one favorite writer or one favorite book. And <laughs> <laughs> but I think books are very intertwined with love for me and in the terms of romantic and friendship and maternal geeky enthusiasm and my love for scholarship and it's incredibly personal and meaningful so it is in some ways about escapism and fun but it's also about hope and discovery and just fucking delight with the whole damn universe (laughs) (laughs) I don't know but god I love getting to know an author and hearing them talk about the story behind the story and then seeing parts of them reflected in their work Like, I realize that is a big thing that I enjoy about books. But then I also feel incredibly self-conscious about the idea of doing that myself as a writer. So I have, again, this conflicting pull between the love of the thing and the fear of the thing, I guess. Well, it's incredibly intimate. I mean, 
I know just having having known writers, especially for some reason, <laughs> and I think it's it's Anne Lamott who talks about, you know, all fiction is memoir mm-hmm. that that, you know, I've known so many people who have revealed things of themselves through something that was supposed to be fiction. Yeah. You know, both both personally and professionally. <laughs> and it's <laughs> truly and it's it's fascinating to me that like it it makes sense to me that you would be sort of fearful, like like drawn to drawn to write. But that doesn't sound right. No, that sounds exactly right. <laughs> drawn to write but not wanting that because there's a level of openness when you talk about your relationship to books as a reader and what you're receiving you like it sounds to me and you can correct me if i'm wrong but it sounds to me like books are themselves wide open yeah in terms of vulnerability and they just kind of they encourage you as the reader to be the same that like if you open up then you can receive this story or knowledge or information or whatever it is that you're interacting with. But it's, I mean, that's super, super intimate. If you're going to open all the way up, either as a reader or a writer, you can get really hurt. Yes. And it's a whole lot safer to read naked than it is to write naked. (laughs) And that's kind of what it feels like because it is completely open when I'm reading. And yeah, but just realizing that that's the, that's the connection for me, that that's the conflict has been really helpful. Like I have no idea how to fix it, but I've never <laughs> been able to articulate it before. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, clarity is the first step. Mm. You know, clarity is always going to be the first step. Once you're clear on what it is and you can name it or, or articulate it or, you know, label it and then ignore it (laughs) (laughs) or you can synthesize it synthesize it you can synthesize it i finally added in one transition hey (laughs) kelly jones with the segue because clarity is holy god damn it it really is it really really is so what have you got for synthesis all right so this is kind of huge okay (laughs) because why not but One of the things that we consider with synthesis is the connection this topic has to living our lives as our authentic selves. Mm -hmm. And I realized as I was writing the script that I owe access to my authentic self to one book in particular. Wow. And this is a long story that I'm going to try to keep short, but bear with me. So I suffered with chronic debilitating low back pain for years. Starting when my first child was about a year old, every day was a game of Russian roulette with my own body. Oh, honey. Yeah, it wasn't a question of whether or not I would be in pain today. The pain was always there. It was a question of how much pain um, and what would I be able to do? Would I be able to um, drive? Would I be able to lift my baby? How long could I sit or stand, or really do just about anything, um, Mm -hmm. and how painful was it going to be? There was no obvious source of the pain. 
I hadn't been injured. Doctors suspected that something might be off with my digestive system or my pelvic floor muscles or both. Or maybe I had injured my back and I didn't remember. Mm -hmm. That seemed really unlikely. But, you know, when you're living in that postpartum haze of no sleep, all kinds of things seem possible. Yeah. And I had had back labor with my first child, Mm -hmm. which if you don't know what that is, you're you're very fortunate. Yes, you are. I felt all of the pain of labor in my low back because my baby was sunny side up. So coming out, babies usually come out um, facing their mother's backs. My first decided to come out facing my front. So the biggest part of the head came first and then he was pressing against my low back. And I thought, well, maybe I was injured during all of that that pain when I was in labor. But as soon as he was out, my back felt fine. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't until he was about six months old that things started to get really, really awful. So my doctor and I explored every single avenue except surgery. I mean, several rounds of physical therapy, acupuncture, massage, chiropractic care, various forms of exercise, including a series of yoga classes that was designed to heal back pain, heating pads, ice, vitamins, herbs, negative heel shoes, support belts. I mean, all kinds of things. Um, I participated in a healing ritual that involved a giant piece of selenite. That was not my doctor's idea, but, you know, it was like I was going to do everything I could. And some of the treatments seemed to work for a little while, and other areas of my health improved, which was nice, Mm -hmm. but the pain stayed. And the thing that finally worked was a book I found totally by accident. Oh, wow. Maybe not totally by accident, but I was was searching the library's catalog for a book called The Divided Mind by John E. Sarno, MD. But the first book that came up under Dr. Sarno's name was called Healing Back Pain. And I was like, well, <laughs> well there you go. <laughs> that's for me. So I checked that out, took it home, read it in four days. Mm-hmm. My back felt better after two days. Oh, wow. Yeah. Dr. Sarno describes a condition called tension myositis syndrome or TMS and a type of person or personalities prone to experiencing it. And it was like this book was describing me. And despite some serious skepticism, because, I mean, hello, Barnum effect, (laughs) I was able to internalize Dr. Sarno's theory enough to erase my pain before I had even finished the book. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, and just to, you know, if anybody's curious, I mean, TMS is in its pain that involves muscles, nerves, tendons and ligaments, but it starts with the mind. So the pain is real and it's horrible, but it exists only as a distraction from repressed trauma and emotions that we label unacceptable in ourselves. So a lot of times it's emotions like anger. Mm -hmm. So in other words, there was nothing wrong with my back. There is nothing wrong with my back. It was my feelings that were broken the whole time. (laughs) But what's interesting about this to me is that chronic pain was practically my whole identity for six years. And having found and read this book and acknowledged the trauma, I have all of this mental and physical freedom now that I wouldn't have otherwise, I don't imagine. God, I'm glad you found that book. Yeah, me too. 
And when I when I realized this, I thought I had been thinking I was still thinking about my little curated home library. (laughs) And I thought for a while that maybe it was autobiographical because I kept a couple of books because seeing their spines on the shelf remind me of who I used to be. Mm -hmm. But Healing Back Pain is not now and never was part of my book collection because once I was done with it, I was done with it. Yeah. So I thought about this some more and I realized that my books are a reflection of the things I'm not done with. I love that. They're also, I mean, I just love to look at them. Mm -hmm. They're just so beautiful arranged on the shelf. And I love the collection of human knowledge and experience and communication. And I will always keep at least a few books, no matter what, because I agree wholeheartedly with John Waters. If you go home with somebody and they don't have books, don't fuck them. (laughs) Don't let them explore you until they've explored the secret universes of books. Don't let them connect with you until they've walked between the lines on the pages. Oh my God. I love that quote and I want it framed on my bookshelf. And I wish someone had said those words to me when I was younger. (laughs) (laughs) That is brilliant and fantastic. You got a whole lot of life ahead of you. So I'm saying them to you now. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the, the books thing is a requirement yes. now. But of course, <laughs> I, I had not articulated it so, so eloquently. So once you've gathered yourself, are you ready to synthesize? <laughs> once you stop delighting me with quotes and my ready to synthesize? Yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> So I think my ultimate synthesis would be moving from reader to writer. Better understanding the deep love I have for books is helping because it's giving me insight to the writer's block that so loves to keep me company. And like you said at the beginning of this episode, it does all go back to Elizabeth Gilbert's creative paradox because it matters more than anything and it does not matter at all. And in terms of which you said, I loved your words for accessing your authentic self. Big Magic is probably the closest thing I've ever had to a Bible. And I mean, that book is held in my heart. And I think I need to reread it with this in mind. Because I normally read it wide open. And I just, it's just all of it. You know, it's everything that she mm-hmm. talks about. I think I need to do a focused reading of it with this particular idea in mind. Because maybe if I can hold that idea of books being both holy and playful in my heart at the same time, then I can write. But also, like for future reflection, I'd like to gain a better understanding of my love for books because I still don't know where it comes from. And I would like to know. Well, I think it has something to do with what you said at the beginning about what you were able to access from books. Mm -hmm. So books and reading and the way you talk about the experience of reading sounds very much like the experience of engaging with another person. It really sounds to me like books and reading were your first romance and your first love story. Yeah, I think so. All those things (laughs) that you desire in life, you got from books. Yes, that's true. Oh my God, I'm blushing. I'm literally blushing. I'm a woman in love with books. Yeah. 
the love between a woman and her collection of books. Yeah. So what was your favorite part of the book, Orgasm? Well, my favorite part, my favorite, my favorite part is the smell. Mm-hmm. I'm with Rupert Giles. The getting of knowledge should be smelly. <laughs> God, I do love Giles talking about books. <laughs> what about you? What's your favorite part? Oh, it's just that feeling of falling, falling into a story or a new world or an intimate, engaging conversation and the physical experience of empathy that comes with deep reading and the physical feeling of walking into a bookstore. And I think that it's it's very much in tune with writing because after an actual orgasm, the flow state is my favorite state of being and both books and writing take me there. I love that. So did you have any spontaneous orgasms this week? I had a spontaneous orgasm while we were recording. Oh my God. <laughs> you were so quiet. <laughs> I know. I have two children. <laughs> this is a skill I greatly admire. Please tell me about this spontaneous orgasm. You were on a roll talking about something lovely and romantic about about books and reading and how you engage with them and how you see like how they shape things for you. Mm-hmm. And I realized I have the relationship you have to books to movies oh I have that with movies there was there was a particular phrase that you used and of course now I don't remember what exactly it was but I thought I have had that but not with the book I have had that with a movie huh what movie oh I mean Dozens of movies okay. over the course of, you know, my movie watching life. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think, I think I engage with movies the way you engage with books. Oh, that is interesting. And we definitely have to do an orgasm about movies then. Yeah, I think we do. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that settles will it. will be a fascinating conversation. Yeah. It really will be. All right. Well, what have you got for spontaneous orgasm? Can you top my silent but meaningful? Oh, hell no. (laughs) (laughs) You get all the points, baby. That was fantastic. Mine was sweet. This was just a little sweet, tender, maternal orgasm. But in unpacking... I found this little keepsake box of books that my son wrote and made when he was young. So this is the folded piece of construction paper with the white printer paper, you know, folded in half and stapled that he illustrated and drew and wrote his name on. And the darling child included in an about the author page. No. Yes, he did. And it was the cutest thing in the world. And it has always made me really sad that he's not a reader. He doesn't love books the way that I do. But it reminded me that at least I got enough books into his system that he made some when he was little. And I'm really glad that I still have them. So it just delighted me to no end to find them because they are darling. That is completely adorable. They're so cute. (laughs) 
All right. So anticipation for our next episode, Noel, it is your turn to choose the topic. What's it going to be? Fantastic. I love this. I am going with my spontaneous orgasm and our next topic will be movies. Spontaneous orgasm topic. Yes. I love it. Yes. Okay. A spontaneous orgasm topic from a spontaneous orgasm. That's everything for today. To connect with us on Twitter and Instagram, follow me at Noella Loud and Kelly at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag orgasm. You can also go a little deeper by visiting the Chipperish forums. Go to chipperish.com, click on forum and join in the discussion. And like all Chipperish Media Podcasts, Orgasm is 100% patron supported. Just a dollar a month or more gets you access to the live chat and Discord where you can hang out with me and Noelle and all the Chipperish patrons. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. If you want to support us for no dollars a month and you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, you can scroll on down and give us a five-star rating and write an awesome review of the show. That's a great way to help other folks find us. Or you can post about your orgasmic experience on your favorite social media platforms. Explosive inspiration is better in a group. We'll be back next time to talk about movies. Until then, we'll leave you with the words of Anne Lamont from her book, Bird by Bird. Which is on my bookshelf. Which is on my bookshelf, too. And my audio collection. (laughs) For some of us, books are as important as almost anything else on Earth. What a miracle it is that out of these small, flat, rigid squares of paper unfolds world after world after world. Worlds that sing to you, comfort and quiet or excite you. Books help us understand who we are and how we are to behave. They show us what community and friendship mean. They show us how to live and die. Do you want to do movies next? Do you want to Netflix and chill with me? Is that what you Oh my god. I'm sorry. Movies are a primary vehicle for making out. That's what movies oh, are for. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, now you have to say that on the podcast. I'll cut it and put it at the end if you want. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm serious, though. Like, that is why we invented. You watch them in the dark sitting beside each other. Come on. You well, read a book with the light on. You watch a movie with the light off. And there is a reason that I have seen the first half of the vast majority of movies that I have seen and not the second half. Yeah, I don't. I, I have seen <laughs> I've seen the first maybe maybe the first two thirds of Moulin Rouge. <laughs> oh, well, is it? Yeah. I mean, come on. I mean, like 20 <laughs> more times that I've seen the entire movie. Well, it's yeah, <laughs> it's fine. Oh, my God. I cannot kiss someone and read a book at the same time. I can kiss someone and watch a movie at the same time. That's what they're for. Audiobooks. (laughs) 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 That's what audiobooks are for. I haven't tried that. Research is needed. Thank you very much. I've solved (laughs) Solved everything. But yes, to answer your question, let's do movies next. Okay. All right.